to Mark chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, Mark chapter 5 is where we'll be today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath the seat around you. I believe it's page 840. We will continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark on this beautiful Sunday morning. I, uh, I'm a man of extreme, so last week I was in a tie, if you were here, and this week I decided to dress it down, okay, with a t-shirt. Some in our congregation thought we were moving in a direction, so Wes is in the dress shirt tucked in today. I uh, had to keep people guessing. Um, we are uh, continuing on through the Gospel of Mark this morning in Mark chapter 5, where we have left off. You'll notice behind me there's a crown of thorns on our cross on the altar, as well as the purple altar cloth. We are in the season of Lent, and so Lent has begun. It began last Wednesday, uh, on Ash Wednesday. It's a period of 40 days before uh, Easter weekend, where Christians have historically and traditionally set aside time to uh, fast from certain things or to add spiritual disciplines into their life. And so Tuesday evening, we had a great service talking about how we might participate in Lent. If you're interested in that, uh, you can talk to myself or one of our elders, uh, Michelle or Jake, are here this morning, and I'd be happy to walk you through what that might be able to look like for you in your life. Um, today will be our last Sunday in the Gospel of Mark. I won't actually be here next week. I'll be in Miami. So I heard there's some cold weather coming in again. And so I bought a plane ticket to Miami. Uh, I'll be over there enjoying 85-degree weather on the beach. Have fun. Uh, Wes will be here preaching with you guys. And then I'll come back, and we'll spend four weeks in the book of Jonah uh, as a study for our, our season of Lent. And so if you remember last year, we went through Lamentations during Lent. This year we'll go through the book of Jonah, a classic tale of disobedience and repentance uh, that we can all probably relate to as disobedient people uh, and people in the process of repentance. And so I'm looking forward to starting that when I get back with you in two weeks. Um, but today we will look at a story in Mark, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, it is a remarkable story of healing and of faith, uh, and I am excited to share with you. So Mark 5, we'll pick it up in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and she had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, saying, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You, are, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you ask, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now we have here in Mark the second of six sandwich stories. Uh, So if you remember from earlier in our series in Mark, Mark loves to use this technique of storytelling where he will start one story, in the middle of it he'll insert another story, and then he'll go back to the first story and finish that up. This is what you have here with Jairus' daughter. So Jesus is on the way to go heal this daughter, and then this story is interrupted by the woman who is bleeding. And Jesus heals her, and then we'll get back to the story uh, of Jairus and his daughter. That will be the story we'll be looking at on Easter morning. Um, You'll see there's a progression through the book of Mark, and so... Last week and the week before that, we saw Jesus calm a storm on his way over to the other side of the sea. 
We saw when he landed on the other side in Gentile territory, a demonized man came up to him. A Gentile, unclean, man full of demons, legion came up to him. Now he gets back on Jewish land, but the uncleanliness still follows him. Uh, so there's this progression in Mark that, that shows Jesus' power over nature. He calms the storm. His power over uh, demons and the supernatural. His power now over disease this morning as he heals this woman. And then as we'll see on Easter Sunday, his power over death itself uh, as he heals Jairus' daughter. There is a, a lot to look at here. We'll focus today on the inside of the story. So you got the sandwich, the bread, and the meat. Uh, the meat here is the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, who's healed by Jesus. That's what we'll look at this morning. There is lots of humor in the story and lots of unanswered questions. Uh, so it's, it's pretty humorous that Jesus asked, who touched my garments? Uh, and the disciples report this, right? They're like, why is he asking this question? Uh, this is as close as they get to calling Jesus stupid, right? And they're like, there are hundreds of people all around you. Probably hundreds of people have touched your garments. What are you asking here? Um, we're told that Jesus, as a miracle worker, can feel power coming out of him when he heals. So, again, it's just an odd story. So we don't always know exactly what it's like to have these healing capabilities that Jesus has. Apparently, you can kind of tell how much your battery's charged. And Jesus tells someone touched him and power went out from him. Again, this is interesting. There's often a connection between touch and healing in the Gospels, but never from this side, right? It's, it's always the healer touching the person with intention. Never someone just touching Jesus without him seemingly aware of it, right? But just the touch uh, allows him to be healed. I wonder if it's not too unlike being an introvert. So I'm an, an introvert, and so spending time around people kind of depletes my energy. I can feel my battery draining, right? Jesus is walking around with this healing point system, and he feels it. Someone just got healed by touching me, and he turns around and, and asks who it was. And it's this woman who was bleeding. Um, this morning, I want to look at the story from two perspectives. So the first from this woman, uh, who I like to call the daughter who used to bleed. The daughter who used to bleed. And then we'll look at the story from the perspective of Jesus. We'll see three things we can learn from the woman's perspective and one thing we can learn from Jesus' perspective. So we start with the woman. Um, what we know about her from the story is, again, she was this bleeder. Um, I want to teach you a, a word this morning. It's a Hebrew word. Uh, sounds like this. Zabak. Say that with me. Zabak. All right. That literally means oozer. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of gross. This is what this woman was. Okay. She was a bleeder. Um, it's not specified in the text. Most likely, 95%, she is menstrual bleeding, okay, for 12 years. There are lots of similarities between this woman and the daughter that Jesus heals. The daughter is 12 years old and a female. She's a female. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Um, we get in Mark four participle clauses that all lead up to an active verb uh, to emphasize what's happened to her and then what she does in response to that happening to her. So we're told she had a discharge of blood or having a discharge of blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians. We know this was a perennial problem for people in the first century. Um, fake physicians, particularly for poor people. They would often spend inordinate amounts of money on physicians who claimed to be able to heal them, but who didn't have the power or knowledge to be able to heal them. So it's actually very likely she had actually been victimized by an oppressive system set up to capitalize on poor, ignorant people who had diseases. So she has suffered much under physicians. She spent all she had, but was not better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus. And all of this stuff happening to her as a, a passive person then leads up to her going out and touching Jesus. She finds him in the crowd on his way to heal the daughter of a very important man, a uh, very wealthy, important uh, leader of the synagogue. And, and she touches his garments and immediately she's made well. Um, this episode only makes sense from the perspective of first century Jewish 
purity laws. And so first century Jews were very serious about purity. There were certain things that were pure and certain things that were impure. There were certain things that were clean and certain things that were unclean. And if you were to encounter something that's unclean or impure, it would contaminate you. It would make you impure. And one of these things that that commonly uh, made you impure was the menstrual cycle. Um, So this woman is an extreme of what a a woman, a normal woman, would have experienced every month uh, in the Jewish life of the first century. Um, So someone on their menstrual cycle, you can read about this in Leviticus, um, they would be considered unclean. So you're not allowed to touch them. You're not allowed to be touched by them. You're not allowed to actually even sit on things they've sat on. You're not allowed to touch garments that they have worn. Um, they are unclean for that period of time. There was a man named A.J. Jacobs who wrote a book. He's an atheist reporter who wrote a book called Living Biblically for a Year, My Life uh, Living Biblically for a Year. And this was one of his uh, most comedic chapters was about this rule. So he tried to go through the Bible and take all of the commands and live them out very literally for a year. So he grew his beard out, put on a cloak, all that stuff. He stoned an adulterer in a park um, with pebbles. He just had to get it. Um, but he reports that this one his wife actually really didn't like. And so he had to buy a stool and take it around. Because you realize you never know in our modern day, right, when a woman's on her, her period. And so he would have to sit in a subway, just sit in his little stool, right? And his wife was apparently pretty vindictive about his journalistic project. And so before he would come home, she'd have sat on everything in the house. And he'd just have to sit there all night on his little stool in the corner. Um, you're not allowed. You're not allowed to touch them, right? And touching them would make you impure. You'd have to go through ritual cleansing at the temple. Um, what we know about this lady, um, what we can assume about her from history, is she wouldn't have had family. Uh, if she was married before this disease started, this was grounds for divorce, and most likely her husband would have divorced her. Uh, if she had kids, the kids are gone too. Um, during these 12 years, though, we know she wouldn't have been able to have kids. Um, again, she is ritually and religiously impure. Uh, so she's not allowed to the temple. She's not allowed to participate in any religious activities. She's about as marginalized of a person as you can imagine in the first century. Everything about her screams unclean. And she encounters Jesus, uh, and this oozer receives healing and, and stops bleeding. Uh, it's similar to AIDS patients' reports um, during the AIDS epidemic. Um, so there was one man who had AIDS who, um, when that was real big and everyone was getting AIDS and people weren't sure about the disease, you would separate yourself from people who had AIDS, right? And there was fear that even just touching them or touching something they had touched would be able to give you AIDS. And one AIDS patient reports that he got kicked out of his house when, upon diagnosis and had to live in his parents' garage. And they would bring him food out every day and set it on the porch and he would have to stay in his garage until his parents had gotten back in the house. And then he could go out and pick up the food and take it back to the garage. Seems like this woman would probably be able to relate to him. Um, would have similar experiences. The crowd itself would probably be very upset if they knew that she was among them. Right? Um, she was at risk of contaminating all of them as she comes into this crowd that is pressing in around Jesus. On his way to heal a little girl uh, of important status. Uh, the synagogue leader's daughter. Um, Again, it's hard to imagine anyone more marginalized uh, by their society. And there's three things I want to point out that we can learn from her perspective. The first one is the importance of faith. Um, This woman was a a woman of great faith. She had this kind of sheer audacity and the ability of Jesus to heal whatever it was that had been put in her life. Um, Again, all these things had happened to her for so many years And upon hearing the reports of Jesus, she set out with one mind to just try to touch him. And and all she needed was just to touch him. And she didn't even touch his body. She touched his garments. 
and in that she received healing. Jesus turns to her once she has come forth. Again, pretty bold that she would even say, it was me, bleeder, I touched you. Um, she identifies herself, and Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you, your faith has rescued you. Um, here and elsewhere in the Gospels, there is a lot of emphasis placed on faith's power to allow Jesus' power to flow in and through us. Um, faith is the channel which Jesus' power works through, uh, in which people are healed. The one instance in the Gospels where Jesus cannot or will not heal people uh, is in his hometown where he says there's no faith. Uh, a lack of faith seems to correspond to a lack of miraculous healing and transformation on the part of Jesus, whereas an increase in faith, um, this belief that Jesus can and desires to heal, seems to correspond with miraculous and transformative events taking place. Um, I would want to suggest this morning that the relationship between faith and healing is a real one. There, there does seem to be a very real correspondence between the amount of faith a person has and the amount of healing God works in their lives. But it's not an ultimate one. And so Christians can kind of get caught up in this every now and then. So if someone's sick and, and they pray for healing, and other people around them are praying for healing, and they don't get healed, it, it's probably not proper to say they didn't have enough faith, right? You don't know that. I don't know that. No one knows how much or how little faith they had. Um, we often try to boil the world down into really simple parts and think if someone's sick, it's either because God didn't want them to be healed or because they didn't have enough faith. Um, I would like to suggest the world's much more complicated than that. There's a whole lot of other factors involved in creation um, going on. We know that from Jesus' perspective, so if we're, we're trying to learn about God through Jesus, um, it seems like it's always his will in the Gospels to heal people. Never once did Jesus encounter someone who needs healing, and he goes, you know what? This is God's plan for your life. He encounters sicknesses, and he casts it out. He sees demons, and he rebukes them. There's one occasion where he says no to a woman, a Gentile woman, and then she debates with Jesus, and he eventually says yes and heals her daughter from afar. Um, it seems as if it's, it's Jesus' mission, right, to come and to heal, to get rid of everything that doesn't belong in God's kingdom. Um, and it's our responsibility to have faith in that. Uh, and the amount of faith we have will correspond to the amount of transformative power we receive from Jesus. But, but again, there's, there's um, a variety of factors in play here. So the connection is real, but it's not ultimate. You can't blame things, I think, on God's lack of care, right? God just didn't want you to be healed. Well, I think there's something deeply true about the desire that God wants all of his creation to be healed, um, even if it's not seen in the moment or experienced in the moment. And you can't just belittle people and say that they didn't have enough faith. Um, um, but faith truly plays a, a role in uh, the Gospels, particularly in Mark. It plays a big role. So the importance of faith we learn from this woman. Um, we also learn the importance of uh, understanding or receiving Jesus' care for all of his people, for all of his disciples. Again, Mark sandwiches these stories so that we'll compare the elements of the stories together. Um, and you've got two very unlikely people being healed by Jesus. This daughter is the daughter of a very wealthy, very prominent man in her society, um, Jairus, the synagogue leader. Uh, he comes to Jesus. Jesus goes on his way to heal his daughter. And this woman is an unnamed woman, um, poor, marginalized, again, as unclean as you can get in the first century. And Jesus stops what he's doing. He stops going on his way to heal Jairus' daughter and heals this woman. Um, as we keep reading, his... Um, lack of urgency to get to Jairus' daughter leads to her death. She ends up dying before he gets there. Um, but Jesus cares so much about this one unnamed, marginalized person. Um, she becomes his daughter. Um, you'll see there, Jesus, he, he speaks to her in verse 34, and he calls her daughter. Uh, this is significant. This is actually the only woman in the Gospel of Mark who Jesus calls daughter. 
Um, so Jesus is on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, and in the process, he meets his own daughter. Um, this unnamed woman gets this reversal of identities and becomes very important to Jesus as adopted into the family. Um, I think it's, it's true of us that it's often easy to fall into this mindset uh, where we think that Jesus has much bigger fish to fry than our own problems. Uh, there are much more important people for Jesus to attend to uh, and for Jesus to heal and for Jesus to bring life and, and love and power and hope to. Um, and, and sometimes we think maybe our problems are too small or perhaps we're too insignificant for his care. Um, and as Sunday schoolish as it sounds, right, I think part of Christian spirituality is the discipline of cultivating in ourselves this mindset where we say, even our problems, even us, he cares about. Uh, even our holes, even our pitfalls, even our temptations in life, he cares about, has concern about. We sometimes think of Jesus like we think of a normal human being. A normal human being can't um, really sympathize with everything, right? If we tried to sympathize with all the wrongs that were going on in the world, we'd have no time to do anything else. And we wouldn't even then be able to realize how much um, wrong is going on in the world. Jesus is unlimited, right, in his wisdom. is unlimited in his time. He's able to attend to each one of us very personally, very intimately, uh, know and care about and bring healing to all of the different problems that might be in our lives, all of the things in our past or our present uh, or things that are coming into our um, future. So we see the importance of faith. We see Jesus care for even the smallest and most insignificant people in creation. They become his daughter. Um, and then we see uh, a, a very close relationship between what happens to this woman and what happens to you and I as Christians. Um, so she goes from being someone on the outside, unclean, to being adopted into his family. Again, very significant that Jesus calls her daughter. Um, you and I, the scriptures say, have gone from being people who are on the outside, who have now, by our faith, reaching out to Christ, and by his power on the cross and resurrection, we have been adopted into his family. Romans 8 says we're called sons and daughters. Um, surely if there's anybody we can relate to as Christians, it's this woman. Um, we were the users. We were the ones dead in our sins and our trespasses. Uh, and Jesus has reached out to us. We have touched him and been healed and adopted into his family. Um, we can call God Father because in Christ we are made sons. Through the Holy Spirit, our adoption is guaranteed into his family. So the three things we can learn from the woman's perspective, the importance of faith, Jesus' care for all of us, and then um, we can see our own adoption into the faith through her adoption into Jesus' family. Um, from Jesus' perspective, um, it's very significant that, again, looking at the, these impure, pure laws, um, what happens in the story is very unusual. So the first century Jews had a very defined way of thinking about the world. Um, it was very worked out in their minds. And the flow of impurity was a one-way street. So if you touch someone who is impure or they touched you, the, that which was pure, you, um, became impure, right? Impurity was contagious. Sin was contagious. Um, uncleanliness was contagious. If you touch these things, you became them, and you would have to go get ritually washed. What's very interesting about this story is that the flow is reversed. So when the woman touches Jesus, a first century reader would be expecting Jesus to then be unclean, right? She's a, she's a oozer, and she's touched him. He's unclean. Whoever else was in the crowd is now unclean. Jesus has got to be frustrated that now he's got to go get ritually washed and purified instead of continuing on in his ministry. But that's not what happens with Jesus. The flow of impurity is reversed. Um, this is very significant. Jesus is touched by the woman, but instead of him becoming impure, she becomes pure. Do you see that? His purity is more contagious than her impurity. 
His holiness is more contagious than her sin. I think there's a very powerful lesson going on here and throughout the rest of the Gospels. So um, from Jesus, you and I are also supposed to learn how to imitate him and his mission. We're called to go out into the world the way that Jesus has gone out into the world. He says in John's Gospel, as I have been sent, so now I send you. Go out and bring light um, to places where there's darkness, bring life. To places where there's death, bring clothing. To places where there are naked people, bring food. To places where there are hungry people, we are to join Jesus on his kingdom mission. And, and what we see here and through the rest of the Gospels, I think, is an important lesson for us on the kingdom mission. Uh, we might call Jesus' type of holiness contagious. Jesus had a contagious holiness um, where when he encountered people that were impure, um, whether religiously or ethnically uh, or because of behavior, tax collectors, prostitutes, um, and the like, Jesus ended up rubbing off on them instead of getting them rubbed off on him. Does that make sense? Um, we grow up as human beings with this advice from our parents. And it's not necessarily bad advice, but the advice is be careful who you're friends with because they'll end up rubbing off on you. And it's, it's true, right? If you hang around a bunch of hoodlums, you'll probably become a hoodlum one day yourself. Um, there's this danger, though, in taking this thinking up in with ourselves as we progress in our Christian walk, and then as we enter into the mission field, which we're all in as Christians. And the danger is that we'll continue thinking this way. And so what will happen is we'll build these cultural uh, and religious ghettos where we only relate to people who are like-minded and who act the way we act and who think the way we think and who believe the things we believe, and we'll disassociate with everybody else. And with disassociation comes demonization, right? You assume the worst in them. You demonize those people. You stay away from those people. And, and the mission of Jesus is killed. It's cut right in half. Because those are the people who most need the light of Jesus. Who most need to be touched by the hands and feet of Jesus. You and I, the church. But what happens is we, we think if we hang out around those people, we're going to catch the sinnies, right? They're going to infect us. We can't let them into our families. We can't let them into our communities because they're going to bring their impurity into our situation and contaminate all of us. There's a, a big lesson to learn from Jesus' ministry, though, which is holiness is more contagious than sin. Purity is more contagious than impurity. It's, it's a bold decision to believe this. It can be risky sometimes. It can mean inviting people into your life who might mess things up a little bit. But I think without this, this thinking, the mission of Christ is really cut in half. It's really stopped before it gets started. Um, because we are called, like Jesus, to go out into the world to those who least deserve it. Uh, to those who don't think like us, who don't believe like us, who don't act like us. We can't separate ourselves from those people. We've got to go out and touch those people, rub against them, and believe like Christ believed, that their sin is not going to rub off on us or our family or our community. Instead, our holiness, our identity in Christ will rub off on them. You'll see this in play throughout the Gospels. So Jesus does this with people who are religiously on the outside with behavior. So he's constantly accused of and is guilty of being a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Now, not once through the Gospels does Jesus start collecting taxes. He never is around them so much. He's like, you know what? This is a pretty good way to make money. And he starts collecting taxes. Never once does Jesus become a prostitute. I mean, it seems pretty common sense to us, right? But he's around them all the time. Uh, never once has he become a prostitute. Never once has he become a sinner. What happens is these people end up transformed by his presence, um, by his um, example in life in front of them. And Jesus is legitimately friends with them. I think sometimes we underplay this. Uh, we imagine Jesus at dinner with the prostitutes, thumbing his nose at them. 
right? And every time they say something, I'm going, can you believe that? This girl's a prostitute. I can't believe we're here, right? Most likely we should read this as Jesus is actually enjoying their company. Gasp, he might be laughing with them. He's probably not reminding them at every chance how awful they are, how much God disapproves of their behavior. He's simply rubbing off on them, being around them. Um, his holiness was the kind of holiness that was attractive. So tax collectors and sinners wanted to hang around him, which is far opposite of the kind of holiness that a lot of Christians adopt in our culture. We become people who are holy, and that holiness is like a reverse magnetic field. It pushes people who aren't Christians away from us. They think we're judgmental, we don't like them, we want to tell them so much about how God doesn't like them, and so they help us in the process of separating ourselves from them. Um, instead, I think we should um, try to aim for this much more attractive holiness where um, we seek out those who are bleeding, we seek out those who are unclean, and those are the people who we go um, take Jesus' contact to, take his life to. Um, a, a biblical scholar named Craig Bloomberg once said this about this contagious holiness. He said, Jesus wasn't contaminated by contact with sinners, as we see in this account. It was they who became contaminated by contact with him. He rubbed off on them as they came into contact with his transformative presence. The way of Jesus was different. For him, holiness is a matter not so much of separation from sinners as of separation from anything that inhibits full commitment to the God who is drawn near. In Jesus, God is drawing near to people who are unclean, who are far off, who are in the dark. Um, as God's presence in the world right now, as people who join Jesus on his kingdom mission, we can't make the mistake of separating ourselves from those people. Um, like Jesus, both in our families, in our individual lives, as a community, as a church, we've got to continue to reach out to those people, to rub off on them, um, to have relationships with them. So this morning as we come to the table, I ask that you would have these thoughts on your mind. Um, the table is this great reminder of what has happened to us in Christ. Um, we, the oozers, have been brought close to God through Christ. We've been given the uh, spirit as the seal of our adoption, our inheritance in Christ. And at the table, we're committing as well to go out into our weeks with the mission of Christ, uh, to go out and take his love and his hope and his joy um, to the places where it is desperately needed in our world. Uh, and so in a moment, we'll pray and invite you to the table and ask that you would come up with these uh, two things on your mind and in your hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that this morning you would seal these words.